Karlsson, Karlsson, världens bästa Karlsson Karlsson, Karlsson, hoj här kommer Karlsson Karlsson, Karlsson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Karlsson Skulle jag så bra som mig Karlsson, Karlsson, Karlsson scores Karlsson, Karlsson, Yes, welcome everybody to another episode of Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the longest-running fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by a guy who has the same birthday as Connor McDavid, believe it or not. A few years different, but still, counts. I'm your host, Elon Dabrowski, but of course, I am just kidding, because I'm still exhausted from the mega show that I recorded with Brian on Sunday night, so I am handing the mic over to Ben Burnett for an awesome show, because he talked to low tide Alan Mitchell all about the Edmonton Oilers, a really interesting team to dig into right now, after finally coming off a decent playoff run before running into those buzzsaw Colorado Avalanche, so Ben and Alan are going to have a really interesting chat all about what the future of this team looks like before. Before we get to Ben's interview with Low Tide, I, of course, will mention a couple things. First of all, Keeping Carlson very proudly presented by DauberHockey.com. It's your source for all of your news and notes and everything fantasy and the tools of Frozen Tools can't be beat. I really love them. Check it out, DauberHockey.com. Also, uh, I mentioned that Brian and I recorded parts three and four of our UFA and trades recap. So I think at this point, we're pretty much up to date. So if you just want to get all the fantasy takes for everything that's happened since the draft oh we also have an episode about the draft with scouting will scouch and then yeah everything since the draft we covered in parts one two three and four of our extravaganza breaking everything down up to and including the matthew kachuk for jonathan huberdo and mckenzie Weger trade so yeah if you you know, obviously there's lots of great podcasts breaking down like, you know, which teams won the trades and things like that. But obviously Brian and I like to dig into who benefits, who's hurt from each signing and trade. So definitely go check out those episodes if you haven't yet. And uh, the easiest way to do that is just to subscribe to Keeping Carlson wherever you listen to your podcast. And you'll just automatically download because we've got more shows coming, including more beat writer interviews. But I think with that, I'll just let you enjoy this existing episode that you've clearly already downloaded. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Ben Burnett's interview with Alan Mitchell all about the Edmonton Oilers. Welcome back to Keeping Carlson. I am your host, Ben Burnett, for another edition of the Beat Writer Interview Series. And we have a very special guest today. We have a beat writer from a team that made the Western Conference Finals this year, the Edmonton Oilers. We are, if you follow the Oilers, then you absolutely uh, are familiar with the guest that I'm about to introduce, uh, known pseudonymously uh, around the net as Low Tide. We have Alan Mitchell joining the podcast today. Alan, aka Low Tide, how are you doing this fine summer afternoon? I'm very well. It's my first day of holidays uh, and my first holiday in some time. So I'm very relaxed and uh, my dog is uh, sleeping, anticipating me going and getting my lunch soon. So it, it's the next hour or two is going to be a lot of fun around here. That's that's absolutely correct. Uh, I'm I'm very excited to chat with you about Edmonton, a team that had really like, it feels like a, a sort of two very distinct halves of the season. Like uh, I remember, you know, most of the first half or maybe like 50 games of the year or so, it felt like people were ready to, you know, uh, kick out every single member of the, the front office again. We were, it felt like we were reaching sort of like the, uh, the prime uh, despair years once again in Edmonton. And then they wind up making the Western conference final um, with, uh, Oh, we have, we have a pup well, uh, cameo. Anymore, so I apologize. <laughs> All good. Um, but so the team replaces Dave Tippett with Jay Woodcroft in February, the season turns around. Um, I guess what I'm wondering as somebody who lives on the East coast and doesn't get to stay up for nearly enough Oilers games anymore, are there any players in particular who stood out to you as having big turnarounds after the coaching change? You know, that's a great question, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this. There were uh, two players, one Mike Smith, who uh, got healthy and went on a hell of a roll, uh, and another Evander Kane, who was signed, I think, five games before Tippett was fired. Uh, and they, had, they both had major impacts on the turnaround. But the, the, for me, the big change was... From Jay Woodcroft, the coach, and Dave Manson, the defensive coach, what they did was uh, they 
they started dressing seven defensemen instead of six, and they turned Darnell Nurse and Cody Cece into a super top pair in that they played all of the top minutes, all of the elite minutes, and quite a bit of the secondary minutes, and they, they made two third pairs, uh, and they made that work. And it sounds impossible. I'd never seen it before. Uh, but for me, Kane Smith and the um, the recognition, the recognition of the two new coaches that they needed to do something in order to suppress the offense from the elite players. Uh, those three things were absolutely key, and they all worked very well. And that's, uh, I mean, yeah, they obviously worked very well. That's right because. Uh, this Oilers team, if you had told folks in late January or so that they were about to go on a run to the Western Conference final, I don't believe most folks would have believed you. Um, and I think something really interesting when I look at the top of this Oilers squad, um, looking digging into the 2022 points for uh, for at forward, I definitely kind of expected once again Connor McDavid would run away with the with the uh, Art Ross Trophy. Um, most people probably remember that McDavid had 105 points in 56 games in 2022. That was a 150 point pace. And Leon Dreisaitl was also second place with a bullet, uh, two seasons ago, finishing with 84 points. No one else in the league even hit 70. Um, but despite the big uptick in scoring around the league, both Dreisaitl and McDavid see their paces drop back down. McDavid back in that 120-point neighborhood that he lived in the years before the pandemic, while Dreisaitl actually dropped a little bit lower than his his pre-pandemic pace. I guess I'm just wondering, though, Alan, uh, while, um, whether you see this as a function of the team's game plan to sort of spread out the offense a little bit more, or if you think McDavid and Dry can kind of get back to that otherworldly 2021 level. Well, it's a great question, and I think that one of the, the other elements uh, that the, the new coaching staff tried to do was create a third line at five on five that could, if not outscore, keep the opponents at bay. The, the, the McDavid on, McDavid off numbers uh, have been awful since he got here, really. Uh, and Ryan Nugent Hopkins centered a line with Warren Fogel and Derek Ryan for not long, but it sort of proved they could do it. And that line took away some of the, the time on ice. Uh, but but I also say that that during the period of time uh, when uh, when Dave Tippett was was coaching, there were there was COVID, there were injuries, there was a lot of uh, fracture and disruption. Once the 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 new coaching staff got here, and once Evander Kane was on the team, uh, then I my recall is that the offense was uh, back to being what we could call you know really, really high octane. And it was a little bit shared uh, in that there were two, you know, two scoring lines and sometimes a third of Andrew Kane and Zach Hyman totally changed the, the winger scenario that had been really uh, young players trying to, you know, ad lib with, with uh, Connor McDavid for years, Yamamoto and Pugliarvi, recent examples of that, but uh, Anton Slepeshev and, and Ty Ratty and others in the past were, were sort of, that area as well. I would suggest that the playoffs, by the time the playoffs hit, there was a sense that they they had figured it out. Now, Leon Dreisaitl was hurt, uh, so, so you know, his numbers were uh, not as, you know, spectacular at times, but uh, I, I think the playoffs sort of unleashed the, the possibilities anyway. I, one of the reasons I think that Ken Holland uh, made such great efforts to sign Evander Kane was to sort of have that as an option. They're definitely trying to be more responsible defensively, but I still think you're going to see some outrageous numbers here, specifically from McDavid, but from both big men. And so you mentioned the Evander Kane pickup. I mean, Ken Holland heading into last year, there were a number of controversial additions to the Oilers. I'd say Kane was certainly the, uh, the most controversial and also the one that worked out the best. Uh, everyone was afraid to touch him given the issues that sparked his exit from San Jose. But then when he does join the Oilers in January, he puts up 39 points across 43 games, uh, best career pace of his, of his or best season long pace of his career with 74 point pace um, continues to be a cheat code for leagues that count hits and shots and penalty minutes. 
at the age of 30, he kind of seems to be hitting that Brad Marchand, you know, Nazem Kadri career trajectory of these power forwards that see their best results several years into the career. I'm wondering, as somebody who watches uh, who watched the Oilers very closely, what you saw from Kane in that half season that and what you think his presence allows the team to do that it couldn't before. Well, he, he's the owners have always been looking for a rugged, truculent player uh, to play with McDavid since the the, the terrible hit uh, against the Philadelphia Flyers, where uh, McDavid got crumpled up. They they uh, acquired Patrick Maroon. They signed Milan Lucic, and Kane did two things. Number one, he, he's a real intimidator. Like he can he can he can do everything. He can fight. He can agitate, and he really can can change the the temperature when he's on the ice the other thing he can do and it, it sounds so simple but i've seen a lot of uh, players struggle with it is he goes to the net with a stick on the ice and mcdavid if nothing else is a, a player who's always looking for an outlet along with you know driving to the net and he his brain thinks so quickly it's like a computer if if he knows you're going to the net he'll look for you and he and kane over a half a regular season and into the playoffs they did develop chemistry so I think, you know, Kane, among all the other things that he gets credit for, I don't know that he gets a lot of credit for, for you know, his intelligence, but he, he figured out as quickly as Patrick Maroon, who is the previous best example I can give you, uh, that, that you know, you if you can skate with him and Kane can and drive to the net and, and Kane can, you're going to get a lot of tap-ins and, and you know, great opportunities that might go off on your ass and in, you know, and, and Kane is, you know, sort of a natural at that. And uh, he's also good along the wall and in retrieving pucks. And he knows that, you know, when he gets the puck, uh, not to, to necessarily just give it away or immediately look for, for McDavid, but maybe to, to find a, a quiet area that McDavid can, can skate into. So, I mean, I, People get mad when I say chem, but I think he's got chemistry uh, with McDavid. And it's, I, a lot of it is just that I think they think hockey at a very high level. The other thing with Kane uh, heading into last year is that there were a lot of reports from San Jose about um, his teammates' dissatisfaction with him and, and not wanting him to come back into the locker room. Uh, obviously, Ken Holland decided to ink uh, Evander Kane to a couple of years uh, or extend him for several years. Did you get any sense that any locker room issues such as uh, the ones we were reported out of San Jose became an issue at any point since uh, since Kane was originally signed in Edmonton? No, I, I think, uh, you know, I mean, no, we know something happened in San Jose because there were, mm-hmm. a, you know, rather large population of, of dissatisfied people. So from that point of view, you know, something occurred. Uh, but here he was on his best behavior. Uh, I think because he wanted to show the National Hockey League he was worth a multi-year deal uh, involving millions of dollars, and he proved that. Now, there are, uh, you know, some Oiler fans now who are like, okay, now that he's got the long-term deal, will the other shoe drop? And I think that will will probably uh, follow Evander Kane for the entire contract. That said, uh, he, he was exemplary, uh, and, and, you know, I mean, it, I, I know that people are, are will, will probably listen to that and say, well, sure, he had to be. And I understand that, and that's fair to say. Uh, but judging him by his character as an oiler, uh, so far I don't recall any kind of uh, uh, unusual behavior. Uh, I know there are a lot of fans who are still concerned that he was signed the first time, and again, just on a like a, a, a you know a moral issue based on on. You know their reading of, of events in the past, and I totally get that too. I I never tell anybody how to fan, but as far as his um, commitment to the hockey club, really his time in Edmonton uh, has been without incident, uh, unless you want to count the the one game suspension he got uh, at the end of uh, at, the, at the end of the playoffs. And let's hope that it stays that way, because obviously uh, some of the reports about Kane in San Jose were disturbing. And uh, obviously the hope is that he does not revert to some of that previous uh, behavior, the uh, previous alleged behavior, I suppose I should say. Um, the other uh, winger who was added to the Oilers uh, last offseason was Zach Hyman, who came in and paced right around 60 points. 
came close to hitting 30 goals for the first time in his career and was a fan favorite, you know, even through the lulls this past season. Fans seem to love Zach Hyman, uh, a guy who you can really plug and play anywhere in the top nine. Do you see Hyman being someone who has more to give in a full year under Jay Woodcroft? Yeah, I, I, I've got a gush about uh, Zach Hyman here because he is, um, you know, there are flaws. Like he doesn't, he doesn't see because he's so busy keeping the puck away from the opposition. Sometimes he doesn't see a pass that's available, uh, and and you know, you'd, you'd like him to, to maybe outlet pass a little bit. But as a hockey player who gives all of his effort and who can turn over puck and has a really good offensive uh, um, acumen. Uh, Hyman was a, a breath of fresh air after all of the free agent signings that didn't work out. He was an absolute home run. Uh, I, I I think that, you know, he's probably a 60, 55, 60 point player on this team, depending upon who he plays with. He played up and down the lineup. He played on all three of the top lines. He played left wing and right wing. Uh, he was on both special teams. There's, there's not a lot he can't do. And, He's exactly the kind of player Edmonton Oilers fans really value highly. He's a, a you know a lunch bucket kind of a guy. He's a hardworking guy. The the, the fan base are uh, you know, and I hate to oversimplify it, but it, it's a it's a hardworking town. Uh, there there are a lot of uh, you know business owners and that sort of thing, but there's a lot of workers as well, or or farmers or folks who uh, get their hands dirty, as it were. And Hyman's a get your hands dirty kind of hockey player. So I think. Oiler fans see him reflecting them, and that's a lot of why he was so popular. I will tell you, it's been years since anybody came in and was as popular as he right from the start and all through the year. Uh, when he scored, um, I think it was game three against Calgary, and he and uh, Evander Kane were scoring basically at will. The, the roof almost came off. That was a gigantic night for both men and for the Oilers. And the other player who sort of fits in this tier of, you know, the Oilers' most important forwards below the, you know, generational talents is Ryan Nugent Hopkins, um, a player for whom I notice expectations of uh, of what will cut, like preseason expectations for RNH seem to vary wildly ahead of each season. Last, uh, in 2022, Nuge ends up missing about 20 games with injuries uh, and winds up posting 50 points in 63 games, which is pretty much around his average over the past few years. Uh, And you mentioned the split of the uh, putting Nuge on that third line as a center. Um, He spent a lot of time this season away from both Dreisaitl and McDavid, which is new for Nuge. I remember it was very recently that the Oilers felt, I can't recall if it was under Dave Tippett or prior, but the Oilers felt that they had to kind of keep Nugent Hopkins with McDavid or he didn't have anyone to play with. Um, but then this year, yeah, he he ends up on a line with a, a couple of bottom sixers and maybe some time with Hyman and Yamamoto in there as well. I guess I'm wondering which spot you think Woodcroft sees as his ideal fit for Ryan Nugent Hopkins in this lineup. Well, based on, on what we're hearing, it's either going to be second-line winger, left winger, or third-line center. So it looks like another hybrid year for Nuge. Uh, I'll tell you, that I'll, I will describe perfectly to you Ryan Nugent Hopkins, and then anybody who's an Oilers fan listening is probably going to get mad at me. But I've watched him for a decade. He's one of my favorite players, and this is what he is. He's not fast, but he has great edges, so he's always around the puck because he, he's not a lazy player. He'll do his stops and starts, and he's almost always near or at the puck either forcing the issue or making a good play. Uh, and on the power play, he's a, he's a uh, Dello once called him a power play witch, and that's what he is. He's so good uh, at finding passing lanes, uh, seams, uh, finding you know a place, a quiet place he can receive a puck. He's just dynamite in that area. But at five on five, at even strength, he does not drive a line. Uh, he's, not, he's not that guy. And when he had Taylor Hall and or Jordan Eberle, the line was highly successful five on five at scoring and also at outscoring. And when he's with Dreisaitl or uh, McDavid, same thing. But but when he's alone, like if you put Nuge ordinarily until last year when I mentioned the Fogel Ryan uh, combination, but if you put him alone on a second line and Dreisaitl and McDavid on a top line, chances are that second line is going to get outscored. 
uh, no matter who you put on with him. So he's not a driver of of uh, success at five on five, but pretty much everything else that you would ask of a center, uh, he's able to do. And he also can, uh, he has, he has you know, hot and cold streaks as a scorer on the wing, but he's also capable of doing that. He's a, he's a wonderful player. He really is. He's undersized, not big, uh, but he's, he, he brings a lot to the game, and he's highly intelligent. Definitely one of the more interesting careers of a uh, number one overall pick in the in a, of the last like fifteen years or so because it it does feel like there's not a ton of of uh, like he doesn't have the career numbers of somebody that you would want to grab in your average uh, first overall pick but he's been serviceable for so long and I mean as you say he he has his spots on the ice and he's always been somebody who has been highly productive points wise for for this Edmonton team. Um, I guess my, my follow-up about Nuge is about, um, uh, about the power play, because I think for a lot of fantasy fans, they see a guy like Evander Kane get signed and they, they want to imagine the ceiling if he were to get, you know, top line, top power play options, or Zach Hyman was a guy who came in and the thought was, oh, maybe he can be net front. And with those two options, it feels like Edmonton could shy away from u- using, uh, RNH on power play one. But you mentioned sort of the skills that make him an ideal fit there. Is he somebody who you think stays on that top unit with McDavid and Dreisaitl kind of no matter what happens in Edmonton? I think he will. Um, the, the, the thing about Nuge is you can play him anywhere. You can play him left point. Uh, you can play him along the wall if you want. Now they're, they're going to have different structure to their power play next year. Uh, but eventually what will happen, I think, is he'll move away from the power play because uh, you know, he's, he's, he was drafted in 2011. So, you know, when you turn 30, often your skills erode a little bit. And, and one thing about Nuge is he plays so much on the penalty kill power play and the strength, he can wear down over a year. But I, I've been, you know, he's a funny player in that, you know, it's easy to say, well, Nuge is the guy you take off the power play. But he was hurt late in the year. And it was the only time I recall all last year where the power play was absolutely putrid when when Nuge wasn't there and I my theory is that he's so unselfish as a player that that he is um he's he's almost like the guy you need on that ridiculous uh power play to keep everybody honest and he can he can sort of meld into the background and become unnoticed but he can slide up and down to the McDavid and Drysdale are running all over the place, and he just sort of compliments them. Uh, you know, I, I guess a, in a, a kind of an unusual power play dance where where he's always sort of got coverage, or he's making uh, an outlet pass available, and so he, he sort of choreographs uh, in his own way the best possible place to be. And I, I, I think they do need a net front uh, presence. Uh, to be honest with you. Uh, and maybe we'll see that this year. They also need a right-handed guy, and and I they've needed that for some time. So I I feel like Hyman uh, should be more pronounced on that that first power play. But when Woodcroft and Manson came in for the first time, really I think since McDavid got here, the second power play became a bigger part of what they were doing. So we'll see that you know Woodcroft has his team. Uh, in a different way, this is going to be totally his team. One of the things I think we may see is a one and two power play that that is more shared, and that may be beneficial to, to the uh, players who weren't on it last year. That makes sense, especially given how long it feels like it's been since McDavid and Dreisaitl were on. Essentially, it was a 1A and 1B power play, and McDavid and Dreisaitl were on the ice uh, for, you know, kind of the Alex Ovechkin. They would get the, the full two minutes. Nuge would see a lot of that time as well. Um, so you you wouldn't be surprised, I guess, to see now that they have enough players to who can score, it feels like they should be able to shelter those guys a little bit, give them a little bit more of a breather. Is is that sort of what the thinking would be there? Yeah, I, I think the the Tippett the teams were, were basically... Um, you know, we'll run McDavid out there with Leon, uh, or not with Leon, and then we'll worry about the rest. And it was, it, it sort of had a, you know, a, a disjointed feel. And the fourth line all, all got caved all the time. Like it was unbelievably how, how that, how badly the fourth line would get caved. And when, when 
Woodcroft got here, he didn't run a fourth line. I remember Derek Ryan saying, I'm so happy that, you know, everybody's playing, but they weren't. Ryan was playing, but he was <laughs> he was he was playing on the third line with Nuge and Fogle and and they had two extra wingers, Cassian and I think Shore, and then somebody like McDavid or Dreisaitl would roll through and double shift on a makeshift fourth line. But they were using seven defensemen. And I, and I think the, the whole idea uh, behind what the Oilers are going to do this coming year uh, is, is not to overplay their stars during the regular year. So they have more to give in the playoffs. And I'll, I'll point to Leon Dreisaitl and Darnell Nurse, who were both clearly injured, but also fatigued uh, after a long year. And I think that the idea is you want to be able to have more depth. There are going to be games when you're up 6-1 after the first period. Well, you don't have to overplay McDavid and Dreisaitl. You can give other elements of the team an opportunity to play and to, to get some more time. And, and that, my suspicion is, is what we'll see. I don't have any proof of that, but I think Woodcroft's a pretty bright guy and he knows it's a, a marathon and not a sprint. Well, and it makes sense too. I mean, given how high the ceiling was this year, just getting into the playoffs with with the level of talent that the, that the Oilers have, um, being able to get there and have more more fuel in the tank seems like a, a strong idea for for this team. Um, the Oilers, looking down the lineup a, a little bit further, they have a pair of guys who could factor into the top six next year that are still waiting for RFA deals in Jesse Pugli, or Jesse Puliyarvi and Kyler Yamamoto. I wanted to start with Puliyarvi, whose future has to be the least certain of any Oiler forward at this point. Um, he's been in trade rumors for quite a while. One of the biggest strikes uh, I often see cited against Puliyarvi is putting up solid underlying numbers, but without scoring much himself. Uh, last year, he registered 36 points in 65 games, despite playing a majority of the season with Connor McDavid and Zach Hyman. Um, as someone who does get to see a lot of Yessi Puliyarvi, what do you think his offensive ceiling is? And would you think that he's an exciting fantasy option if he were to get traded this offseason? I think you could be, depending upon the team, I think you could be fairly certain that Puliyarvi very quickly uh, will establish himself as a player uh, who could who could find his way into the top six. But I I'll be honest, I don't know that he's a 30-goal guy, and I don't know that he's a 60-goal player. Uh, mm -hmm. What he does really well, uh, and and I think he might be the best on the team at it, is he turns over pucks, and he does a really good job of suppressing sorties out of the opposition zone and into the neutral zone. That part of the ice, because he's, he's faster than players think he is and he's got a long reach and a great wingspan so he's always tipping pucks and things are getting turned over and he creates mayhem basically and the 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 risk with fantasy is that often the the things that he will do successfully will result in goals and opportunities to score goals but he's not necessarily going to be a part of the scoring play and I, I, I you know as i say it i go well you know how rational is that? Well, it isn't, except that we're we're several years in now, and he hasn't scored 40 points yet. Now, last year, he started really well, uh, and then he got COVID, and then he got hurt later, and it was a bit of a, a jumble as the season went on. But if, if you can get him at a reasonable fantasy price, and he goes to a team that needs a right winger uh, who, can, who can score... Um, he can do that. He's got a really nice uh, uh, release off the rush. Uh, his his uh, slap shot isn't isn't dynamic or anything like that, um, and he takes a while to get it off. But he also can score from in close. He's good off the rush and in close, and he will stand in front of the net. I think because of his demeanor, I think a lot of people think, well, he's this big guy, but but you know doesn't know how to use his size. He actually he does, but he's not an aggressive, naturally aggressive hockey player, which. I think sometimes makes people more critical of him, uh, thinking that he doesn't use his size, but he does. He he knocks people around and knocks people off the puck pretty well. And you, uh, it sounds like you expect he'll probably get moved this off season. Am I right? Would you put that above a fifty-fifty chance? Yeah, I would. I, I, I it's it's a. Uh, I've seen the Oilers just send so much good talent away for so long, and people will say, "Well, you know, Yakupov went. You know, nothing happened there." But you're you're, you're drafting a guy first overall in Yakupov's case, 
fourth overall in Bill Yarby's case, and you're you're kind of wasting it. And and you know, I, I whatever team gets him, I think is going to get a great opportunity uh, if they can build some confidence. I'll use uh, Justin Schultz as an example. When he left Edmonton, you know, he had not played well for a long time. Schultz, had, you know, his outlet passes, which were always a strength, had become poor. Uh, you know, he was hitting just a simple outlet to the center uh, from his defensive position at the blue line, would often hit the, the center skates, bounce down and hit icing. He'd lost all of his confidence. Uh, and and Pogliarvi ended this season in a similar way. But Pittsburgh acquired him, and they didn't even put him in a game. They waited for a while. They kind of re-structured you know, structured his game and recommitted his, his game. And by the time he got there, you know, onto the ice. He helped them. He helped them win two Stanley Cups. I see Paul Yarby's uh, future as possibly being just as bright in leaving Edmonton, which makes it more difficult uh, from an Oiler fan point of view, I'm sure, to, to you know justify sending him away. But I, I do think that will happen. That's just, that's Oilers hockey, baby. That's tradition in Edmonton. You got to send away those guys who are going to be complimentary players because they can't be uh, you know, superstars or whatever uh, justification they wind up. I, I will say, I will say this though, and and th- this is um, there's a dilemma, and and I don't want to sugarcoat this and make it seem like you know, oh, those bad Oilers. Uh, in the last two years at five on five, when Jesse Puljujarvi plays with Connor McDavid, um, he's scoring at one point seven six points per sixty and point eight eight goals per sixty. And the goal share is sixty-one percent. Those are dynamite numbers, but they're not—they're not, you know, two point four points per sixty. They're—they're—they're they're, they're dynamite outscoring numbers, but but scoring goals and putting points on the board when he's with McDavid, they're not—they're not record breaking. And when he's away from McDavid, he has one point one six points per sixty and a fifty-one point two percent goal share. The goal share is fine. The points per sixty is. It's not a brilliant number. How much do you want to pay for that? And that's the dilemma the Oilers have. You know, if you sign him, let's say the arbiter says three point one million, and the Oilers say, "Okay, we'll take him for a year," and they put him on the McDavid line, and then he, you know, shoots lights out. He scores twenty five goals and fifty points. Now you're dealing with an even more expensive player who's maybe riding the coattails of offensively of McDavid, and that caught them a little bit with Zach Cassian too. So I do understand that side of it from an Oilers management point of view. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's it's funny to hear it uh, argued rationally because I feel like I only ever see the like the the brain warped fan who's talking about how uh, he just is, uh, you know, like you said, the those who are criticizing him for being big and not using his body or whatever it is. But but I certainly can hear the statistical argument uh, from that perspective. Uh, jumping over to Yamamoto, um, who put up 40 points in 80 games last year. He's now heading into his age 24 season and has yet to really put up numbers that make him a surefire fantasy asset. Where do you see Yams's game at this point heading into 2023? And do you think there's still a possibility of a breakout coming, uh, putting him up into the 60 plus point uh, range, let's say? Yamamoto is, is in a way, very similar, even though they don't look similar, uh, to Pulga Yarby. Uh, his issue, Bogarvi's issue, is that that you know he's he's um, he has great elements to his game, but he, he's not able to to turn them into offensive uh, production on his own. Uh, Yamamoto's problem is that he's undersized, so that he's he's prone to, to getting injured or crumpled in the border in, in the corner, uh, and he's he's you never really know if he's going to be able to to go uh, complete an entire season. Now he scored twenty goals this year. Uh, and the Oiler, the top two centers love playing with him based on all evidence. They, they really like playing with him because he's great give and go. He can retrieve pucks. There's a lot about his game that, that aids high skill forwards, even though he's not like a superstar scorer himself. I think, I think with Yamamoto, he's a great bet except for injury risk. I think he'll score 50 points in a year. Uh, I think it's five on five should uh, improve if he gets power play time, you know, maybe, you know, he puts together a year that, you know, that, that will help you win your, your league. I'm not sure 
you know, how much he brings in other elements, other categories that, that would benefit. But there's a lot about him that's really good. I love him as a player. Both both Pugliarvi and uh, Yamamoto are really fun players. But with Yamamoto, it, it almost all comes down to physicality and, and avoiding injury. He's got great hands. Um, he can score goals from, from range. Good shot. Uh, he's not uh, predictable. Makes great passes. Looks for players in good spots. There's a lot to recommend him, and I don't think we've seen his peak performance. I always worry about injury. He is not a big man. We have some of maybe the most interesting uh, defensive core in fantasy hockey to tear apart, Uh, but we're going to take a quick break first. You're listening to Keeping Carlson. Welcome back to Keeping Carlson. We have Alan Lowtide Mitchell on the show today. We are chatting Oilers, and we are jumping into the defense Last year being a very strange season for the oil from the blue line. You have Darnell Nurse and Tyson Berry both going high in fantasy draft. Both wind up underperforming those draft positions. uh, While Evan Bouchard claimed a full-time role with the club for the first time and was at turns incredibly valuable in fantasy and very forgettable, uh, depending on where he factored into the lineup. I want to start with kind of a general question here. After Woodcroft took over, Tyson Berry became the de facto number one power play D-man once again, kind of had that opportunity to reclaim his spot as the top scoring defenseman in the league. Uh, I believe he was number one in the league to in the uh, COVID shortened season in 2021. Um, do you see any reason to expect Barry not to be on power play one to start the season next year? Well, I think he will be. I think, I think that they're, they're both really good, and and uh, but I would suggest that Barry is experienced. Uh, they're they're comfortable with him. Uh, I, I believe recently, uh, Coach Glenn Dellison was talking about Barry's ability and, and how much they value him and how much a big part he is of the the power play they're formulating for next year. So all of those things are indicators that that Barry will be back, and if he is, he should be the number one power play guy. But I, I also think, and I mentioned it earlier, that the second power play, you know, may get more minutes. And it's also possible they'd run two righties on the power play defense in Barry and Bouchard. It's not impossible they do that, too. So I think both men are above average as power play point men. And the Oilers, if they're looking to optimize, which Woodcroft and Manson proved they, they were in a half a season, I think you'll see both of them playing quite a bit on the power play. And I'll just add that if you have Bouchard available in your fantasy league, grab him because all the indicators, all the indicators on him are that he is going to post really big numbers. I think it was 43 points a year ago. And he's so good at passing. He's great at getting the shot through. He scored a couple of big goals late in the season and into the playoffs. And he's gaining a lot of confidence. I think his, uh, I think his first full season, which we saw last year, was among the most impressive I've ever seen from an Oilers defenseman. He really has great creativity offensively and is a brilliant passer. Just outstanding. And he's one of those guys, like, just from watching the box scores, who really contributes all over the ice. Like, he he has some games where he's shooting a ton. He has other games where you can see the block shots and the and the hits show up. He's a guy who clearly has he, – he was drafted with that offensive upside. But, yeah, to see somebody in their first full year post 43 points as a defenseman with just 80 seconds of power play time on ice, that's a that's not something you often see in the NHL. No, and, and you know, his, his game is perfectly suited for five-on-four. But he had a lot, quite a bit of PK time and a lot of even strength time. But the, the thing about Bouchard is that, that he – I, I, you know, I think they might be trying to suppress his second contract. <laughs> and, and ah. I, you know, I mean, I, I'm not, nobody's told me that. I'm just telling what I think. But they brought him along slowly. He didn't play a lot uh, in 2021. And then he played a lot this past year, but not, not in his wheelhouse, which is the power play. So I think they know what they have. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're trying to sign him long term this year uh, to a, you know, eight times five or whatever. But th- this is a sleeping giant. Like, honestly, th- this is a player who could go supernova offensively next year. And it wouldn't take that much. 
you know, he's he just he's so dynamite uh, with the pass, with the elbow passing. He gets the shot through really well, and and you know he, he can he does a flutter ball that gets through, and then he has a hammer that is really good. So th- there's there's a great um, maturity to his game already. He sees the ice very well when he's coming out of his zone as a passer. He's already you know the anticipation among you know fans when when he's playing at home when he's got the puck say as he heads towards the blue line in his own zone and he's looking for options there's real anticipation because he can he can make a, a dart pass and send away uh, somebody on a breakaway uh, so I, I think he's you know if you're looking for a fantasy player who's probably undervalued even after 43 points last year he would be a candidate for sure it's interesting listening to you talk about him. It really reminds me of what we saw with the New York Rangers a few years ago, where they brought in Adam Fox uh, from Carolina, and there's a, uh, a stipulation in the deal where if he only plays a certain number of games, then they, they get to keep one of the draft picks. But they wind up calling him up from day one. A lot of people theorizing that, oh, maybe they'll just try and keep him in the AHL for a year so they can hold on to an asset. But he makes the team out of camp. He never really looks back from there. But still in that first rookie year, they have Anthony D'Angelo, who eats up the power play minutes. And D'Angelo does just fine in those minutes. He a very serviceable uh, offensive defenseman who who looks very good on the top unit. And it kind of feels very similar where you know that uh, Fox has the mechanics. You can see the offensive side in his game. Uh, you know, each and every night, even though he's not getting those power play minutes and you're as a Rangers fan, I'm sort of thinking, okay, maybe we're, we're doing what you're, you're suggesting the, the Oilers might be doing with Bouchard. And then something happens on, you know, night one of the, of his second season, he ends up getting the top power play. And again, never looks back, goes on to win that Norris trophy and he gets a huge contract uh, for his second deal. I can, I can understand why the Oilers might be not to say that Bouchard is a, is a, an injury to Tyson Berry away from a Norris trophy, but I can sort of see the machinations here uh, behind those in a similar way. Yeah. It's, it's, and the orders are at a point now where, where let's say uh, Bouchard just blossoms and he's going to be six uh, in his next contract. Well, then you have to find somebody you can trade from the group making five or more. And that's, <laughs> you know, it's going to be hard. They're, they're, basically locked and loaded now for the duration of McDavid's contract. They'd have to sign Leon Dreisaitl three years from now, but they're, they, they're locked in place. And that's one of the reasons why the Yamamoto and Phil Yarby, uh, and Ryan McLeod contracts are, are still not decided because there's arbitration eligibility and they're worried about that. They don't know who they can shoehorn in. Well, Bouchard will be the ultimate example of that. And, and I think they sort of decided, well, we'll just trade Tyson Berry away uh, when that contract hits. But Tyson Berry's at 4.25. Bouchard, if he blossoms, he could be well past that. So um, I, I don't think they're going to avoid it. I think he's just, I think he could get 55 or 60 points this year. That would be unbelievable for a guy, uh, you know, if he doesn't end up on that top unit, but they, they end up splitting the units and and giving Barry or Bouchard a little bit more time to to blossom, maybe within a Vander Kane, Zach Hyman grouping. Uh, I could definitely see Bouchard being a very interesting fantasy option, even from the second unit in that situation. Um, even though we've been talking mainly about Bouchard and Barry and, and the power play guys, I think that. Darnell Nurse may still prove to be the most valuable defenseman in fantasy for the Oilers because of those those hits, the shots, the penalty minutes. Um, but after Jay Woodcroft arrived, Nurse's power play time on ice almost completely petered out. We've talked a little bit about how the Oilers' power play will likely look different next year. Do you see that? Um, do you see Darnell Nurse having a opportunity to get any power play time on ice next year, or do you think that he ideally fits as a guy? who just really gets minutes uh, on the PK and at even strength? I think they'll try. It'll be load management. I think they'll try to reduce. Look, they're, they're going to try to, to, to you know, have a second and a third pairing this year, which they didn't have. They had two third pairings a year ago. Bouchard's a year older. Uh, I know they like Kulak a lot, but they've got Broberg, who's a rookie, who probably plays third pair with Tyson Berry. So uh, my, my feeling on Nurse, who, by the way, scores very well at even strength. He's one of the better even strength scoring defenseman in the league. 
uh, over the last four, three or four years. Uh, I, I think I think he's a guy who's going to play a lot at even strength and on the penalty kill. And as you said, when the when the new coaching staff came in, the the uh, power play work was was less. I don't think he's terribly efficient on the power play. He's got a great shot, but as a handler of the puck and as a quarterback and a passer, uh, I think that that he's not you know he's not so good that you can't move him off of that off of that five on four. He might play the second power play. Maybe that's a, uh, an option for him. But I think that one of the one of the uh, migrations might be nurse away from the power play and really just for for his own ability to you know he, he he recovers so quickly i think they they just forget about you know how much he plays because he he can you know it's a rare guy who can you know have a, a 45 second shift uh, the whistle goes he goes and sits down and then uh, another defenseman comes on and then there's a there's a penalty and the you know 11 seconds after his last shift he's out there to pk Nurse really has a, exceptional recovery powers, and, and the orders take advantage of that, and maybe too much. And I think the power play would be a reasonable place for them to sacrifice. And so the other Oilers demon I wanted to talk about uh, is is Philip Broberg, who you know not going to be as you mentioned, probably going to be a third pairing guy. He's not going to be the Oilers' fourth most used defenseman, but for fantasy perspective, I think is um, is the next sort of interesting player here. Uh, Broberg goes eighth overall in 2019 and played 23 games last year, just a handful of points to show in very limited minutes. I'm wondering what you think Broberg's path is to a full-time gig in Edmonton and what his offensive upside is on this team, especially given the sort of the, uh, uh, the obstacles that, that stand in front of his, uh, his ability to get offensive minutes. Well, I think, First of all, he's got to establish himself as an NHL player, and that might take this year, right? Like he might, he might average 14 minutes a night over 65 games, get no power play time, little PK time, and he might end up with 14 points. And I know I don't know exactly how fantasy hockey values that, but it it won't be high. Not, not very a, much, no. <laughs> yeah, but he's not he's not going to be a big hitter. But I'll tell you what, Broberg is. He's a very mobile uh, defenseman who skates all four ways well. Uh, he can transport the puck extremely well. Uh, he has good vision. He's a good passer. Not a great passer, but a, a good passer. Uh, when he was in Bakersfield, he really was exceptional on the power play. And he is, um, I have tracked his career going back to Sweden and compared it by age to Oscar Kleppbaum. And he's well ahead of the curve, uh, well ahead of the Oscar Kleppbaum curve. And he's a big guy. His, his, uh, if you go look at his Bakersfield numbers, on the power play, he was just really good at it. He, was, uh, um, he manned the point well, but he also had creativity, a good shot, great passer, uh, could do a lot of things. And as time goes on, one of the areas that I see him improving, but it, I, I can't imagine it'll be this year, is uh, time on ice from the left side of defense. Like if they're going to back Nurse off and uh, Kulak is not a power play guy, and they want a defenseman there and a lefty defenseman sticks on the boards, Broberg, a year from now, might be a candidate to grab some, some power play minutes. I do not think it'll be this year, but I think he, he, because of his speed and the other things that he can provide, and he's a rangy guy, I think he might be a, a candidate here, maybe a couple of years from now, as a, a left-side defenseman on the power play. And finally, we get to every Oilers fan's favorite topic, goaltending. Um, they they go out this year. Ken Holland grabs Jack Campbell, brought in to be the starter for Edmonton on a five year deal worth five million a year. Uh, if you look at Campbell's twenty twenty two numbers, they look pretty solid, but it definitely belies the fact that he went from a Vesna candidate in the first half of the season to playing like one of the one of the worst goalies in the league in the second half. Like Toronto could barely count on him down the stretch. They wound up cycling through the goaltenders on their roster rather than feeding him minutes like you'd want in a workhorse starter. Uh, how confident are you in Campbell coming in and finding consistency uh, behind this Oilers team? I think if he's healthy, he'll be fine. One of the one of the things that we drilled down on that Toronto season, you know, he, there were some some just some health issues and some injury issues for him. And with goaltenders, just like any other player, if they're not forty and they have a tremendous downturn in performance, I always look for, you know, did he have a you know, rib injury or a knee injury or a groin injury? 
uh, because it's such an active uh, defensive position that that maybe something's having an impact. And we have a tendency to forget injuries. We'll say, well, you know, this guy was out with a rib injury, missed three games, and then he's back, and we assume everything is okay. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes the team is desperate. They, you know, he's he's a little better or a better enough to play, but he's not playing at an optimal level. And you know, Campbell's coming to a spot where there's such a weird goalie story here last year, where Mike Smith wasn't available all kinds of times, and then when he was, he was so brilliant. There's a chance Campbell comes here and posts a, a, a less impressive save percentage than Mike Smith, but what they're getting hopefully, is a more consistent goaltender. Because Smith was so brilliant in so many games. And, and quite honestly, you know, they, they got through the, Cal- the LA and the Calgary series and he was playing very well. But he, he he surrendered a lot in terms of unforced errors. And and even though if you look at the wide numbers, if you're talking about, you know, Corsi or, or uh, different events in a hockey game, you want as wide a number as you can to get as many events. There are single events that have enormous impact, and that's where I think the orders will appreciate Jack Campbell. He's unlikely to make a disastrous play compared to Mike Smith, and that is going to be a key. I think this team really was walking on the wild side with both goalies the last few years, certainly from the Chicago series in the bubble right through until this spring against Colorado, there's always been a, oh my God, kind of, you know, oh, that that should have been caught, but it, it turns out it's a double to shortstop. And that's been the Oilers. And I do think it wears on a team and it does become part of their fabric. And what they need from Campbell, even if he, you know, has a 9-10 save percentage, if he can be consistent, I think this team will will do well with him in that. And so how do you figure they they are likely to split those starts? Because I, I do presume Smith sticks around to be the backup here. Um, do you figure he he just is here as a backup to mentor Campbell? Or you could could you see a situation in which they, they wind up in a sort of a 1A, 1B situation? Well, I think Smith is going to spend the year on the LTIR ah, based on okay. uh, yeah, Ken Holland's uh, comments at the end of the year. Now, that could change. You know, life is funny that way. But. Uh, Smith, at his post-season uh, uh, media avail, he seemed pretty uh, downbeat, distraught about how much he'd had to deal with. And, and so I think we may not see him. I know Ken Holland has said he's going to spend the season on the LTIR, whether that means the whole season or maybe he comes off the playoffs. But I think Stuart Skinner is going to be the backup goaltender for the Oilers. And my my own feeling is it'll be like 50 games for for uh, Campbell and 30 for Skinner. They'd really like to give Campbell enough rest so that he's fresh, and they really want to see about Stuart Skinner. They traded up to get him in, I think, 2017 in the draft and have been high on him for some time. And early on, at the end of his junior career and then the first two years of pro, pretty pedestrian numbers. There there wasn't an indication there that he was going to do a lot, right? And it's goaltenders are already unusual. But the light went on for him in the 2021 season. He went to Bakersfield, and he was their best player. And then this year, he played in Edmonton for 13 games, and he was very good. And he was a good, good again in Bakersfield uh, during the year. So I think they want to see Skinner. I think he, something did happen. Maybe it's a small change in how he played the game. Who knows? But he's a, the last two years, if you look at Skinner, and don't overlook the fact that something changed there. I think he might be a, a, a good value here for a team uh, or for a fantasy team looking for a goaltender uh, who maybe a year from now is taking on more of a role. It's an interesting story there to follow with Stuart Skinner this year for the Oilers. Yeah, and I recall that uh, teams were, or fans rather, were, were looking for Skinner to get a little bit more action last year. Um, and they just wound up having too many mouths to feed, I suppose, in that uh, in that Edmonton net. You know, not probably also not trying to overwork Stuart Skinner in his first year in Edmonton. Is that the sense that you got? I, I you know, I'll tell you that I was flummoxed. I'm going to use that word because the the new coach arrives who knows Skinner better than anybody. And the night that he arrived, the first game, Skinner got a shutout. The only game he played in Edmonton with Jay Woodcroft as coach, 
And then he was sent out. And a lot of people were, were just like, what's, oh, I understand that, you know, this is the one area of your team that is so, you know, discombobulated that it's the talk of the town. But, you know, I, I think Skinner would have been recalled and I think he would have played more. But if you saw Mike Smith, he was just, you know, he, he was on the, one of those zones. Um, and, and when he gets in those zones, uh, years ago, I, uh, I interviewed Catherine Silverman, who's kind of a goalie guru. Uh, uh, she can under looks at them as their their the way they are, are playing and their confidence and how they see the puck and she she has written at length many times about Mike Smith and what makes him a great goalie and what makes him an inconsistent goaltender but he was in a zone I mean you the, the Jay Woodcroft would have been arrested if he took Mike Smith out of the net for quite a bit of the spring he was playing so well but the inconsistency at the end as it always has came back and bit him and bit the Oilers. So I think Skinner was a little bit of a, um, you know, caught in that, that, that hot streak by Mike Smith, so he didn't get a recall, but he played well in Bakersfield, and, and I think the confidence they have in him is proven by the fact that they, you know, they, they, you know, they, didn't, go, they didn't go outrageous in terms of uh, finding a third goaltender if they could pick up Pickard, uh, who's likely to be the starter in Bakersfield. And so the last thing that we like to chat about in this series is prospects. And when it comes to the Oilers, one name comes up most uh, when looking at 2023. It seems to be Dylan Holloway, who was drafted in the first round in 2020. Uh, he put up 22 points in 33 games as a rookie in the AHL last year. Do you think there's a spot on this lineup next year for Holloway to get meaningful minutes for the Oilers? I, I do. I think that, that it may not be at the beginning of the year. Uh, he showed a lot late in the year and then into the playoffs. There was a he's had some some hand and wrist problems, a couple of surgeries. There was some concern about you know playing through pain and then you know playing free and easy and then scoring, and that was a concern last year. Uh, but I think he answered most of those uh, later in the year and then into the playoffs. He's a he's a really interesting player. He's got great speed. He contests everything. He's strong enough to win battles. Great passer, great passer, uh, and if he can if he can score like he did, uh, you know, with with the the wrist issue, and if that's completely behind him, I would expect he'd be a really attractive uh, option for uh, any fantasy uh, league player. I would also say that keep in mind, or at least you know, maybe put it in the back, make make a note of it. Uh, mid midway through this coming season, if Xavier Borgo does what I think he's going to do in Bakersfield. He might not get the recall, but he might be an option for recall. He really finished well in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League and looks like a, a pretty high-quality AHL rookie at 20 here this fall. And I think that, that uh, fans should be aware of him because he, he's really slick. And the orders he's a right winger, and the orders are really not set uh, at right wing. And part of that is the arbitration process, but there may be an opportunity next year for Borgo, but Holloway is definitely the guy uh, who's front and center as we enter camp. Are there any other prospects coming up that you that you could see sort of making an impact on the Oilers either next year or or a bit longer term that listeners should be aware of besides Borgo and, and Holloway? Well, if we count Broberg as not a prospect, sure. uh, there there are a couple of interests, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because they're dynamic scorers, and I don't know that they'll get there. But there's a Russian kid named Matvey Petrov, uh, who was a rookie in the OHL this year. The Oilers have signed him. They could send him to the AHL, but I think he'd go back to junior. Uh, he's a pretty dynamic player and a, and a volume shooter and a, 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 a fine scorer. And then the other one is Carter Savoy, who's not a big player, uh, and I don't know that he'll have a, a the complete range of skills. But he's a left winger, and his release is dynamic and as you know scoring goals is difficult so he's a player uh you probably need a year in the ahl but if he scores late in the year or in the second half of the year at a, a you know a fairly high clip we may see him this time next year being talked about as a possibility to, to break camp with the orders they're always going to be looking for scorers who are inexpensive and those two guys if they continue to develop as they did this year will be on the horizon a year from now if they continue to play well. 
And I suppose the other thing that sort of is interesting with, uh, as you say, the the Oilers are going to have spots for very cheap wingers to play with McDavid and Dreisaitl as long as they have these two uh, these two incredible MVP level talents. How do you uh, how do you figure they break camp in terms of the wingers playing with uh, with the big two in Edmonton this year? Well, let's let's assume that Connor Yamamoto is signed and gets a full Yarby's trade. Right, that, yep, that's yep. a big assumption, but let's assume that. Uh, I think you'll see McDavid and Kane as a pair, and Drysaddle and Hyman as a pair, uh, and and probably Yamamoto plays with McDavid and Kane, and then I think Hyman might end up playing on right wing with Drysaddle, and then you would see either Nugent Hopkins or Ryan McLeod or maybe even Warren Fogle on that left wing, but. There's, I'll just warn you that there's another shoot and drop. I think, you know, I think when the orders move Polyarvi out, they may be trying to sign, you know, Rodriguez out of Pittsburgh or maybe even Kessel out of Arizona. I think there might be a shoot and drop here before training camp, maybe even, you know, in the next couple of weeks. I think either one of those players immediately becomes a very interesting prospect on on those lines. I mean, you talk about some of the options to play on the second line, and if it isn't Ryan Nugent Hopkins, you know, like a Warren Fogle to me does not get me very hype about his fantasy prospects, even on a on a line with Leon Dreisaitl. But a guy like uh, a guy like Evan Rodriguez after the season he had in Pittsburgh, and you know, obviously uh, Phil Kessel, we're looking a little bit further back to to his his time in Pittsburgh. Those guys seem like players who could at least approach fantasy relevance. Yeah, and and I, you know, it's going to take, uh, you know, whenever the player that they sign is announced, the first reaction might be, "What the hell was that about?" Right? You know, sign Phil Kessel mm-hmm. or whatever. But it's going to be a very specific thing, and and I think that that you know the owners are are really going shopping for another Evander Kane, a guy who's willing to come in here and. Maybe it's Rodriguez or, or Kessel or whomever coming in here at, at a lower dollar amount, like a lower AAV. But what a great opportunity. What a fantastic chance to, to really legitimately uh, play on a high skill line and maybe fill the net. And if you're Kessel, who's been you know wandering in the desert for the last several years after uh, being one of the more famous hockey players in Pittsburgh for, for quite a long time, and then even previous to that in Toronto and Boston, that might be, you know, exactly the elixir that you need and, and so I could see it happening and it would be an interesting uh, and, and Holland loves older players like I think he prefers them to be honest with you so that's a scenario that could happen it makes a lot of sense and uh, yeah somebody like Rodriguez would be really interesting to me there because I don't understand given the the steps forward he showed in Pittsburgh this year it seems very confusing to me that he's not already signed yeah, I, I think he's holding, you know, it's, it's, I think all these guys are waiting for, for teams to dump money and then they're going to sign with them, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, sometimes those deals work out and sometimes they don't. The owners can't make any move until the, the uh, arbitration processes are done because they are, they're so close to the gap and they might be over the gap. Uh, and so, you know, they might, you know, they might agree to three and three with Yamamoto and Bulyarvi, sign McLeod to 900, trade Fogel and run that way. But and, and maybe Holloway gets a job on the third line right off the hop. But those are those are all options. But they can't do a thing until they find out how much money is going to be allocated to those three restricted free agents, and that's what's holding everything up. But every team, it seems like, want to make a move is being held up by some reason right now. I think Rodriguez uh, and Klingberg, Cadre, uh, you name it, free agents who are out there unsigned. I think they're all waiting on that. So it sounds like you're not expecting to see Kadri to the Oilers dropping and on a on ESPN anytime soon. No, I'm not. Although <laughs> I'll tell you, what a what a great hockey player, and I was very pleased that he was. Uh, I think he scored the only pretty goal in the whole Stanley Cup final, and it was gorgeous, uh, and and won the game. But uh, you know, he, he's such a uh, rugged uh, player, and and you know, I, I know he's not everybody's cup of tea. But, but, you know, he, he's had a tough road. And, and, you know, his time in Toronto, everybody knew how valuable he was, but he mm-hmm. kept making big playoff errors, uh, and they traded him. And, and, you know, sometimes, as, as ridiculous as it seems, 
you know, it's on your second opportunity where you, you know, you, you maybe find that, you know, ed, edge of the line where you don't go over it. And I was glad to see he did it. And, I, you know, I'm glad he won a Stanley Cup and I'm glad that he had such a big impact on it. I feel the same way. And honestly, like one of my biggest cadre memories as a player is is against the Oilers uh, scoring the game winning goal in overtime on McDavid's yeah. line. Yeah, um, he, he so I've always clean. sort of associated those two. Yeah, he beat him clean on that play. I know McDavid wanted a penalty, but he just he, he used his leverage and I think his man strength mm-hmm. uh, to just beat McDavid. And it was over in a heartbeat. I remember mm-hmm. that play very well and, and thinking to myself, how many times am I going to see somebody best McDavid on the winning goal? And it, you know, it has happened, but it has been rare. That's right. Uh, Alan, Mr. Low Tide, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us and answering all of our questions. Where would you like our listeners to find you? Where can they uh, find your work? On on Twitter, I'm at Low Tide. Uh, and I also write for The Athletic. If you go to The Athletic Edmonton, I've got uh, articles there. I've got one up on uh, Jessup Yarby of the five times the Oilers mismanaged him uh, during his career with the team. I've got another one of the top 10 uh, value-free agents that the Oilers can sign. So if you're an Oilers fan, check out The Athletic or at Low Tide on Twitter. And I'm also on uh, TSN 1260 Radio 10 to 2 on Low Tide and Jameson. Although I'm playing hooky for the entire week, I had to you know, get ready for our interview today. And then I'll spend the rest of the week recovering from it. <laughs> well, hopefully we've put you through your paces and uh, this gives you a little bit more of uh, maybe now you can get up to those Darnell Nurse minutes on your next spot. Oh my God. Hey, listen, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you.